Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 64, The Atelier of Thomas Cattle. The next morning, after a hearty breakfast of kippers and kedgeree, sausages, crispy bacon, stornaway black pudding, toasts and coffee, lots of coffee, they felt ready to face the world. After a mile or so outside of town, Nin took a discreet turning on the left, sandwiched between two neatly clipped hedges, and came to a brief stop at a simple black five-bar gate. This swung silently open to admit them, and they drove onwards through a sweep of parkland dotted with mature trees. The atelier was an extraordinary building, famous in the Republic and beyond for its bold architecture. Built and reinforced concrete, the central section rose a hundred feet into the air and was fretted with a looming Dekirico-style arcade, whose neat, round-topped arches teetered on very tall, narrow piers, a motif that was repeated throughout the building. This was flanked on either side by paired drum towers, also pierced with tall, thin windows. From his previous visits, Nin explained that as he rose through the building there were many different levels and layers, including the famous roof garden. Nin parked the cat in the visitor's car park and they crunched across the gravel to the main entrance. This was sunk in a huge round pipe on its side and led like a vein straight into the atelier's heart. Waiting at the mouth of the pipe was an imposing woman in a white lab coat, her dark hair bound in a bun, wearing a pair of thick black framed glasses. She proffered her hand to Nin, who shook it politely as she introduced herself. Natasha Caddle, at your service. We're delighted to be able to welcome you to the atelier of Thomas Caddle. She stared closely at Gillespie and Charlie in particular, before leading them into the building. After mounting a few steps, they came to a wall of glass, at least a foot thick, with no obvious joins. She placed her palm flat on it, and as if by magic, a pair of huge doors were suddenly revealed in the glass as they swung inwards, on hinges hidden in the floor and ceiling. Natasha ushered them through and led them to a screen mounted in the wall, while the doors swung closed behind them. As they approached, Charlie's face appeared on it with his name, address and various biographical details. Natasha gestured at the screen and said, Can you confirm your details, please, Mr Farkerson? As we've not had the pleasure of receiving you before, we need to ensure we have an accurate record. If you could also just place your right hand and thumb on the screen to acknowledge the details are correct. Charlie did so and stood back while the screen added his fingerprints to his file. Next, Natasha turned to Gillespie and invited him forward to the screen. Mr McNaxton, we have not had the honour of serving you before and you must register to enter the atelier. We have created a profile, but could you please check that it's accurate? In which the screen was populated with Gillespie's name, address, height and weight, eye colour the schools he'd gone to, his university degree, and a variety of photographs, including several taken since their arrival. Gillespie looked startled and a little shocked. How did you even get so much information about me, he asked. In fact, how did you even know my name? Natasha looked at him, as if speaking to a young child. As you drove through our gate, your face was captured and matched against a variety of social platforms. We were then able to scrape all the other information we need. We find it saves a lot of time in arguing with reluctant visitors. As I'm sure you can understand, security and discretion are our priority. For example, 
Let's take Mr McGregor here, she pointed at Alistair. He's wanted by the security forces in the Republic and the Kingdom, not to mention 14 other jurisdictions. However, as a long-standing client, we would never divulge his presence here, or his account details, to any external party. Now, if you could just put your right hand on the screen, including your thumb. Perfect. Thank you. That concludes the check-in process. May I please follow me to the sales suite? Natasha led the way deeper into the building until they came to a huge room filled with presses and machines. There were not many people, but the odd white-coated figure could be spotted among the rows of automated production units. Along one side of the wall was a massive cantilevered staircase that rose the full height of the building in one long, inexorable flight. The rough concrete treads were set into the wall with their far ends suspended in space. There was no handrail to catch who fell. Just a long drop to the factory floor below. Gillespie's jaw sagged, not only at the size of the room, but also the height of the staircase. Health and safety worked different parameters in the Republic. Finally, they reached the second floor and entered a large triple-height room. On the far side, there was a wall of glass looked out towards the Highland Line, where the green, grassy slopes of the lowlands broke against the rough-hewn hills to the north. The room was divided into three sections, with one half occupied by a very long table, and the other half divided into a seating area, with display cases, and finally a firing range. Natasha invited them to sit at the table where tea and coffee were served. Now, said Natasha, fixing them each in turn with a studied look over her glasses, how may the atelier of Thomas Caddle be of service? Chapter 65. Wiring. The first alert popped up in the right-hand corner of her screen, and she closed it without really giving it a glance. The system frequently sent her reminders, alerts and warnings, and over the years she'd learned to ignore most of these. She was so deeply embedded in her network that, like a spider sat in the middle of her web, she already knew when there was something to be really worried about. It was only when the second one popped up a few minutes later that her mind focused on the little black box that winked from the corner of her screen. Unusual information request, file download quarantined. She started exploring the network to see what was going on. Firstly, she wanted to take a look at what this file request was and who had requested it. Of course, the network was large, with hundreds if not thousands of users. It could be really hard to stay on top of who was doing what. Which is why there were strict permissions protocols and a few of her own little security checks to ensure that no one could run around unhindered without her knowing. This was probably nothing, but she just wanted to check it out nonetheless. Fiona was worried she'd pushed it too far. In her desire to make the most of her access to the Lament systems, she had chanced her arm trying to get a floor plan of the castle, as this would be invaluable to the rescue. The idea had come to her when she was looking at the catering schedule trying to find the location of Kirsty and McCallum Moore. Of course, these files were not stored in a folder helpfully labelled Castle Ascog Blueprints on it in big red letters, but it had been while she was in the catering department's folder that she got thinking a bit more laterally. She toggled up a few more layers when in search of the castle maintenance files. She was hoping that the maintenance team were not very computer savvy and didn't spend much time in front of a screen. Having found the right network tree, she dug down until she got stopped by a password point. She reckoned she had three goes before setting off any alarms and promised herself two attempts before heading for the exit. She needn't have worried. She got it in one. Password. She now had to think where the best place to look was. She tried plumbing. All she found were orders for a new soil pipe, caustic soda for drain cleaning, 
and a few old and rather inappropriate photos from a past Christmas party involving a pair of plungers. She tabbed back and tried housekeeping, but that was even duller, with invoices for floor cleaner and hoover bags. She was beginning to run out of ideas when she tried the folder marked Power and Light. In there, under the system subfolder, she found what she was looking for, a wiring plan of the castle showing the routing of all the power lines and cables. More importantly, it showed entry and exit points, stairwells and floor plans for all levels, including the sub-basements. She right-clicked and tried to download the file. Nothing happened for a long time, and then a box came up saying, Your request has been submitted to an administrator for authorization. Please wait. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Someone was bound to spot and query the request. But she needed those plans. Instead of waiting for the download that would probably never come, she opened the files and carefully took screenshots of every level before closing them and fleeing the network. She realised that she was sweating with the stress and tension, but she had what they needed. Even if they were just screenshots, that was going to have to be good enough. At least she hadn't been caught. Their back door was still undiscovered. Donna sat at her computer and activated a trace to see what users and devices were active on the network at that moment. Scrolling through the operating systems, open ports and IP addresses, she did not spot anything unusual, but she needed to go deeper to be sure. Next, she launched a packet-sniffing program to see what data had been sent and where it was going to. Nothing untoward came up. She then went into a, the quarantined request, pulling up the file and opened it. Why would anyone want electrical wiring plans? She picked up the phone and rang the maintenance department. It was answered by Doogie McLucas. She sighed. Doogie was always flirting with her, but couldn't hammer a straight nail if his life depended on it. She didn't imagine she was going to have much joy with him. Hey Doogie, how are you doing this evening? She said, in an attempt to be friendly. Aye, all the better for having you in my ear, he replied, in a way that made her feel slightly ill and violated at the same time. Ah, thanks Doogie. Look, just a quick question for you. Is anyone from your team doing anything that would need the wiring diagram for the castle? Uh, I can't rightly say. She could almost hear him scratching his head as he did so, as if the rubbing of his greasy hair might ignite some brain cells into action. I know that Jess had some trouble with the fuses in the West Tower during the week. Maybe she was looking at the wiring for that. Aye, that's probably it. Sorry to bother you. Have a nice evening. Och, the night's yet young. Why don't you come round? We could go out for a bevy in the bar, Doogie asked, rather too boldly for Donna. Thanks, Doogie. That's a kind offer. Another night, maybe. I need to clean my computer keyboard tonight. Thanks all the same. Donna hung up the phone and, feeling satisfied, shut her computer for the night. Chapter 66. Shopping. Gillespie sat fascinated at the exchange that was taking place between Alistair Nin, Charlie and Natasha. Every time they specified a need, she recommended a product which would meet or exceed their specifications. They discussed the basic parameters of what they were looking for, in this case, a close quarters indoor assault. Natasha then made various suggestions which were in turn discussed and considered by the group. It became rapidly clear to Gillespie that not only was Natasha an expert in her own right, but that Caddles was operating at the near science fiction end of the munition spectrum. And although they'd had nearly 400 years of continuous innovation and development, it was still impressive. The conversation started with assault rifles, but swiftly graduated from such run-of-the-mill considerations of accuracy and rates of fire. Natasha invited them over to a particular display, from which he produced a boxy black machine gun, not much more than a foot long. 
The trigger was about halfway down its body and had the curved scimitar of an extended magazine protruding from the base of its pistol grip. Flicking a few clips, she extended a stock from the rear and dropped down a forward grip, transforming what had been a pistol into more of an assault rifle. She handed it to Alistair who immediately said, Heckler and Koch, MP7A1, 4.6mm calibre and 40 rounds in that extended magazine, popular with the US SEALs and other counter-terrorism units. Very good, she said, except this is our own variant with some special features. You see there, at which he pointed at a thin black tube that was mounted on the body of the gun. They all nodded. Well, that is a special extra which we think transforms this weapon, particularly in close quarters combat situations. It may not look like much, but it's what we call a bomber solace, or a light grenade. When you push this button here, she carefully pointed the gun away from them down the range before indicating a small stud on the side of the tube that she then pressed, releasing a flash of coruscating light down the range. That is a unidirectional bolt of ultra-bright light, in this model about 32,000 lumens, equivalent to over 160,000 candles, which will temporarily blind and disorient those you pointed at, particularly in an indoor situation where opponents will be rendered unable to see for at least 30 minutes. The battery allows you up to five discharges before it needs to be plugged in. The assembled group cooed over the weapon, which Natasha carefully placed back on its stand. Alistair then stepped forward and asked, Could you show us some of your latest drone units? I've heard they're pretty special from some of my colleagues. Natasha looked at him and paused for a moment, as if deciding whether it was a reasonable request, before leading them over to a robust sealed door on the other side of the walkway. Natasha closed the door behind them. These are our tactical drone units. They're normally only available to our government clients due to their highly specialised nature. But because Mr McGregor is such a long-standing and valued client, and given the special relationship between Atelier Cadillac and the Grigorach over many centuries, I'm prepared to make an exception in this case. In respect of your scenario, I can recommend two units in particular. The first is this. She pointed to a small grey-painted drone about the size of a flying matchbox. This is our C4X108 unit, otherwise known as the Hornet. It can be controlled by the gyroscopes in your phone, like so in which she held her phone in her hand and lifted it up to make the drone rise and pushed it forward to make the drone move away around the room. As she moved her hand, the drone would track it. Here, you have a go. She passed the phone to Gillespie, who immediately navigated the drone around the room. It was supremely intuitive and delicate with an incredible level of control. There was an obstacle course of wooden posts hanging from the ceiling and Gillespie was soon slaloming the drone through these as if he'd been flying it for years. Very good. Easy, isn't it? Natasha held out her hand to take back the phone before parking the drone back on the table. The Hornet is packed with a charge of C4 explosive that is sufficient to knock down all human targets within a radius of four metres. It is therefore very useful to be able to fly up to an entrenched position or around corners to clear away opposition. It is most effective in an indoor environment. Finally, there is this unit, which we call the Woofer. She pointed to a larger unit about the size of a flying book, with rotors on each corner. This uses an acoustic dynamic energy charge to stun and incapacitate targets over a small area. It would probably still be effective in a room of this size, for example. The beauty of it is that it's silent to human ears, so it can be drifted into an enemy position and detonated, unleashing a sonic pulse that will literally have your opponents on their knees, probably vomiting. It works by disrupting the inner ear with a massive blast of ultra-low frequency sound waves. Because it's so low frequency, it cannot actively be heard. 
a little less portable than the Hornet, but can obviously be used more than once. You fly in the same way using your phone. That now concludes our demonstration for this morning. I think that's all we have that's relevant to your needs. I will now leave you for a few minutes while you consider your order. Natasha turned and left the room, leaving them to chatter over what they had just seen and discuss what they were going to buy and how much they were going to pay. Half an hour later, having agreed on a shopping list and saying farewell to Natasha, they found themselves walking back down the entrance tunnel into the fresh morning air, carrying a variety of packages. Gillespie suddenly felt that time was running very quickly now. They could not afford to waste a moment if they were going to be in time to save Kirsty. The glamour of their visit to Caddle soon began to wear off, as the reality of what they were about to try and do came front of mind once again. As they drove down the snaking driveway back towards the entrance gates, he could feel a sense of foreboding rise, gripping his guts in its suffocating clench. He closed his eyes and focused on pushing it down, thinking about his friends, not just Nin and Charlie, but now Alistair, but also Breege and Ian and Kirsty. This helped him to push away the crushing coils of self-doubt, freeing him once again to breathe and think, and while the gnawing demon of fear wasn't banished, it was subsumed for the time being. Chapter 67. The Rat's Nest For the sake of discretion, Fiona breached Jamie and Archie had decided to convene at Ian the Rat's house on the outskirts of Clacken. This was a simple highland cottage, white-hulled and with two dormer windows peeking out from under the roof. They trooped into the spotless kitchen and, having kissed Liz, the rat's bounteous wife, on each cheek, they each pulled up a chair and surrounded the table to talk. The warmth of Liz's welcome was renowned throughout the county, and soon the table was groaning under dropped scones and shortbread, tea cakes and squashed flies, whose oozy treacled raisins tumbled from the grip of their flaky short pastry. In between hot buttered mouthfuls, they tried to focus on the grim task ahead. Once the contents of the table had been cleared away, mugs of tea were filled, and Fiona propped a tablet at one end of the table so they could conference in Nin, Charlie and Gillespie. The first thing they saw was the immediately recognisable top of Nin's head, the spiky prongs waving in the camera lens as he tried to prop his tablet up. Once he'd pulled back from the camera, they could see four figures looking back at them. Charlie leant towards the screen and said, Before we get started, let me first introduce you to our good friend and ally on this operation, Alistair McGregor which he held up his hand as if to frame Alistair's face. Alistair's face seemed to shimmer and weave, as if behind a heat haze or greasy fingerprint, and it made it very hard to see the fine features unless underneath those dark brows. There was a stunned silence around the table as they contemplated the reality of what was being discussed. To team up with this most notorious Catalan, famous for kidnaps and murders, robberies and assaults, seemed reckless although no one could deny that those skills might be very helpful in their current situation. Having got over their initial surprise of their new ally, Fiona started by updating them what she'd discovered from her excursions on the Lament network. She circulated printouts of the screenshots that she had taken of the electrical wiring floor plans, with yellow highlight around the cells she thought held Kirsty and McCallum Moore. They all felt nervous over how deep they were, particularly sub-level 6. That was an awful lot of flaws to fight your way out of. They rapidly agreed that a frontal assault would never work and they would need to use stealth to have any chance of success. But how were they going to get in, and more importantly yet, how were they going to get out? For every route that was proposed, more questions and issues were raised. The mood around the table began to get gloomy. No one had the answers, they were all out of their depth. The glimmer of self-confidence that had been sparked by Fiona's success was now guttering and in danger of being extinguished. Then an unexpected voice popped up. Liz, the rat's wife, had been plying them with pots of tea in her astounding range of home baking, 
had been standing at the kitchen counter listening to the bold and ambitious plans. She had said nothing as ever more extravagant stratums and tactics were passed back and forth by the team. As the black cloud of hopelessness started to settle on the gathering, she plucked up the courage to speak. Excuse me for asking, but am I right in thinking we're looking for a way to get into the castle? The group nodded and invited her to pull up a chair. Aye, well, if that's the case, I may have a crazy idea. I'm sure many of you are familiar with McFarlane's Bakery in Tarbot, across the water from Ascog. Aye, well, that's run by my cousin Morag. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's famous for the best baking on the West Coast. Nodding of heads and involuntary licking of lips was all the confirmation she needed to continue. I happen to know that she's always making stuff for Ascog. It seems that the lamentation has a sweet tooth to go with all his other vices. How about we hold up the next delivery they have to the castle? Take the order there ourselves. That should get at least two of you inside the castle walls. There was general wonderment around the table at this brilliant idea, but the hope that sprang in their breasts was almost immediately doused by Archie. It's all very well, Liz, but how do we know when the next order's going to be? It's quite possible there won't be one for weeks. Can't just afford to wait. The seesaw of hopes raised and then dashed was almost more than Fiona could bear. It always seemed as though someone was trying to pick holes and look for problems when they weren't coming up with their own solutions. She racked her brain, trying to think of a solution, but answer there came none. She stood up to take a walk around the kitchen to better aid her thought processes. She looked at the cupboards with their neatly stacked plates and upside-down glasses, the tea towels draped from the hooks and stacks of baking trays, the calendar on the wall with every day neatly struck out after it had been passed with a single line, the pinboard with jobs to do and useful numbers, deliveries expected and appointments that had been made. It was then that she saw it. She gave a squeak of excitement as the idea popped into her mind fully formed. The others all turned to see what she was so excited about. She reached down and picked up a folded copy of the latest Urban Raven, where on the front cover in big black type it announced, Lament invested as Colonel of the Black Watch. She held the paper up in front of her as she turned, eyes gleaming. Don't you see? We don't need to wait for a delivery. We can order our own. We can commission to send him a cake to celebrate his investiture as Colonel of the Black Watch. There's no way they're going to turn that away at the castle gate. There was a stunned silence as the room contemplated the brilliance of this idea before Archie said dryly, So, this is a bit like the Trojan horse, but in a cake. After the laughter died down, the mood soared as they discussed the plan. Eventually it was decided that Alistair could place the order and pay for it from an offshore McGregor account, leaving no trace back to the McNachtons. As they placed the order, they could specify when they wanted it to be delivered, making it very straightforward for them to intercept the delivery boys, substituting their own team, who could thereby gain access to the castle. The buoyant mood around the table did not take away from the fact that this clan, clever though it was, would only get them into the castle, not necessarily out again. But the positive momentum pulled them onwards, and they'd soon agree the remaining details. It was almost insane in its ambition, this was no time for timidity. They had to be bold. Chapter 68 The Great Impenetrable Forest After the call finished, Charlie and Nin disappeared to pack, while Gillespie sat in the bar with Alistair. Gillespie had worked hard to persuade him, Nin and Charlie that he should accompany them. They had pointed out his lack of military experience and the dangers they were going to face, but Gillespie had been adamant. He hadn't come this far to turn away now. On one thing they did agree, he would not be part of the team that actually entered the castle. That would have been foolish beyond words. Instead, he'd be their eyes and ears on the outside. 
The wheels of the plough were now turning and gaining momentum. Alistair had spoken with Liz's cousin at McFarlane's bakery in Tarbot and placed the order, paying with one of his many offshore accounts. Charlie Nin's giggles had almost given the game away as they sat listening to him place the order. Alistair had to ensure that the cake was sufficiently large that it would require two people to carry it, and he went into great detail of the flavour and shape of the cake, the type of icing he wanted and the dedication written on it. Incongruity of listening to a wanted man like Alistair McGregor going into such detail on cake icing was almost more than Nin and Charlie could bear. Gillespie eventually had to usher them from the room. Finally, the order was placed for delivery the following afternoon, which gave them precisely 24 hours to get into position. They split into four different teams. Alpha was the penetration team of Nin and Alistair, their two most experienced fighters. Beta was Charlie and Gillespie, the on-the-ground backup outside the castle. Gamma was Breach, Ian Archie, who were going to intercept the cake and provide the getaway. And finally, there was Omega, which was Fiona who would be based at the Campbell Digital Unit and provide online infiltration of the Lamont network. Bridge also had the task of briefing Duncan Campbell and McCallum Moore-Stewart on details of their plan. When all was agreed, they stood back to admire the plan, rather like an inventor admires a prototype, all held together with bale of twine and tape. They knew it could work, they felt that it should work, but would it actually take to the sky or fall apart on the ground? The clock was ticking, they had to get a move on. They piled their gear into the cat and headed out of Dune to the west. The first part of the journey was straightforward and took them along the way that marked the border to reach the east shore of Loch Lomond, where they crossed at Rewardenan Ferry before making their way to Arica. There they had to leave the cat and Alistair arranged for a trusted Grigorek boatman to take them down Loch Long and out through the Clyde estuary before heading up the eastern coast of Butte to reach their drop-off point at Loch Ridden on the southern coast of Cowell. This was as near as they could get to Castle Ascog without attracting unwelcome attention, though it still required a sharp walk through the great impenetrable forest and over the hills of Cal to get to their target. It was around midnight when the boat pulled away from the quay. The journey had so far been uneventful, but it was now that the real pressure started. As the whine of the boat's engines faded into the night, all Gillespie could hear was the lap of the tide on the shore and the whistle of the wind through the inky blackness of the trees ahead. Alistair had chosen this spot as it was as close as they could realistically hope to get without being spotted. The reason he could be so confident of this was that Cowell was almost entirely subsumed by the Republic's infamous Great Impenetrable Forest, which, true to their name, was near impassable to man or beast. Gillespie had studied the Great Impenetrable Forest in both geography and biology at school, where it had been used as an example of how a reckless introduction of non-native invasive species can wreck an ecosystem. In the late 18th and 19th centuries, many rare plants were brought to the Republic to be cultivated and sold to collectors from around the world. However, the success of one of the introductions had surpassed all others, with a particular variant of Rhododendron ponticum coming from Spain, finding the climate of Cal very much to its liking. In the intervening centuries, it had spread to cover the entire peninsula in its writhing, choking branches. It crept over and smothered the hillsides, was seemingly immune to destruction and had incredible powers of self-resurrection. Its only positive feature was that it made a very effective barrier to kingdom aggression, its interlocking branches creating a continuous and impregnable biofence, which rendered the movement of troops near impossible. Gillespie was now contemplating the deep black reality of this forest, with its rustling leaves and spiky branches. Although Ascog was only a few miles away, it might as well have been on the moon. Alistair claimed to have some knowledge of the forest and took the lead, 
using the GPS on his phone to try and find a forestry path in the interior. As they pushed through interminable clumps of bushes, the cold, wet bog and pitch black of the night made progress impossibly slow. Gillespie was beginning to regret coming. How were they ever going to find their way out of this maze? He was constantly ducking under or climbing over branches, being slapped in the face by the wet, leathery leaves or poked by their sharp twigs. Hour after hour, they trailed Alistair in a silent conga, as inch by inch he led them deeper into the forest. Every now and then, Gillespie would look behind to see if he could see where they'd come from, but the branches seemed to close ranks behind them, sealing their path with an oppressive black, wet wall. As if contending with the obstructive vegetation wasn't bad enough, they also had to clamber their way over a spine of hills before finally coming onto flatter terrain on the western slopes. This was forested with plantation pines, and within their dull and serried ranks they finally stumbled on the access track that Alistair had been looking for. Once on the track they made good time, and were soon only a short distance from Ascog. Gillespie was cold and exhausted after the gruelling slog through the forest. By contrast, Nin and Alistair looked like they were just getting started. They had a few hours to kill until the appointed hour, so they at least had some time to get some rest. Here the forestry had reverted to Ponticum, and having left the trail, they pushed a few yards into the blackness until they found a small clearing, where they could safely have a bite to eat and some sleep away from prying eyes. Chapter 69, Interception The bow window of the Boar's Head Inn made the perfect viewing point, and Archie had arrived mid-morning to ensure that he could get the table tucked into the curved curtain of glass that looked out over the harbour. While he had sat and waited, he drank endless cups of coffee and tea. He tried to alternate them, as if that would fool his body over the amount of caffeine it had consumed. Despite the flow of plates and cups to his table, his eyes never wandered from the large plate-glass window of McFarlane's bakery. He could even see the zinc countertop, groaning under the sweet confections of all colours and flavours. Millionaire's shortbread, fly cemeteries, apple turnovers, flapjacks, cat's tongues, crispy cakes, fairy cakes, cupcakes, donuts, almond slices, coconut macaroons, scones and pancakes, not to mention the savoury section, with stovies and black pudding wraps, bacon slices and sausage rolls. The list went on and on. If it hadn't been for the size of the lunch he'd just eaten, he could easily have demolished a few platters of their products too. His job may have been the most comfortable, but it was a critical one. He had to alert Breach and the Rat at the precise moment that the cake was about to start its journey, and, given the very public environment, they couldn't afford for anyone to be suspicious. Down on the quay, Ian the Rat was leaning against a bollard looking out across the water. Breach had a black cap pulled low over her fair hair, and was slowly feeding chips to the seagulls that crowded the quayside, hustling to get their share. She had attracted quite a flock of those noisy and vicious avian thieves. Archie tested his microphone making sure they could all hear him in their discreet earpieces. Now all they had to do was wait. The weak sun shone, a welcome change from the drizzling rain that had wrapped the west coast for much of the previous week. Of course, weather here rarely stayed the same for very long, but it appeared to be calm and fine for the time being. Archie looked at his watch. Just gone 2pm. They didn't get a move on, they were going to be late just as he was wondering what ingenious and uncomfortable punishments the lamentation doubtless had for tardy delivery boys, Archie saw a boat slip across the harbour and pull up, stern to the harbour steps. It was a classic West Coast taxi boat, about 20 foot long with a generous enclosed cabin and a powerful engine. These boats could be seen puttering up and down the coast all day, making deliveries and dropping off customers. They were the lifeblood of coastal commerce. 
With the tide quite low, the roof of the wheelhouse cabin was below the quayside wall, shielding the interior from view, a point in their favour. The two boatmen sauntered across the road to McFarland's. Simultaneously, the rat set off from his bollard towards the quay steps, so that as they were distracted going through McFarland's door, he was calmly walking down the steps onto their boat and out of sight. Breach was now surrounded by a cloud of gulls. They flapped, screaming and cawing, as she tossed the occasional chip among them. She expressed no interest in anything that was happening behind her in the bakery. She didn't need to, as Archie was already giving her and the rat a running commentary from his vantage point. Finally, the bakery door was hooked open to allow the two boatmen to squeeze through, carrying a huge Tupperware cake box, at least two foot square and a foot high. They carefully walked it over the street, successfully negotiating the curb and avoiding the storm drain. They got to the key steps and gently started to descend, struggling to keep the box flat. They were now out of Archie's sight, and so it was over to the rat and Breach to work their magic. Breach waited until they got to the bottom of the steps, had negotiated the transom and were trying to get the cake past the wheel into the cabin. This was her moment. She dropped the steaming bag of chips to the ground, causing a white-winged explosion of gulls as they fought to get to this generous bounty, screaming and flapping their fury at the competition. The cacophony was deafening and distracting, something that Breach was relying on to hide any noise they were about to make and to focus all eyes on the gulls and not the boat. As the gulls fought and tore at each other, Breach slipped silently as a shadow down the steps and over the transom. The men were completely focused on the delicate task of placing the cake on the table in the cabin. One had his back to her, while the other had his back to the chain locker in the bow. As the cake hit the table, the chain locker door exploded outwards. The rat grabbed the man from behind, passing a thick, garroting band around his throat and cutting off his air supply as he wrestled him backwards. Before his companion could even react, Breach tapped him on the shoulder. As he turned, conveniently wide-eyed and mouth agape, she sprayed him liberally with mace, incapacitating him instantly as he clawed at his eyes and throat. Breach looked over to the rat to see if he needed any help, but the boatman struggling was getting fainter, and it wasn't long before he was still, unconscious but breathing. They swiftly bound and gagged the two men, covering them with a pile of blankets. She tried to wipe as much of the mace off the man's face as she could to limit his discomfort, but his rage at the unexpected assault was obvious. She just hoped that the bonds would hold until their mission was over. With their prisoners secure, she went back up the steps to cast off, the only sound on the quayside being the screams of the girls as they finished the last of the chips. She nodded at Archie and cast off the ropes, before getting behind the wheel and slowly guiding them out of the harbour, threading her way through the maze of boys and boats towards their destination across the loch. It was a lovely day for a cruise, even if their destination was not one that many would have chosen. The water of Loch Farm was looking at its most seductive, its silvery sheen reflecting the green, craggy hills. It was not a long crossing, and within twenty minutes they had moored up at the small harbour of Portavadi, which sat a mile or so below Castle Ascog. There, waiting for them on the quay, was the familiar grin of Nin and the new face of Alistair MacGregor. Breach embraced Nin. She had not realised how much she'd been missing him, but now she had his sparkling blue eyes staring back at her, she felt her day had improved. She then turned to Alistair McGregor. He was not what she'd expected at all. She'd imagined a big, beefy cutthroat, probably covered in scars and tattoos. Instead, with his lithe frame and average height, he was almost nondescript, except for those pale eyes, neat dark hair and thick eyebrows and fine features. His face was extraordinary and indescribable at the same time, like the itch which you cannot scratch, the word on the tip of your tongue, the thought at the back of your mind, 
You know it's there. You can feel it. You can reach for it, but you can't pin it down. He shook her hand politely, and that of the rat. For Ninon, he took the cake and set off up the hill towards the castle. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs>